Hi guys, in case you didn't know, I'm at the Edinburgh Fringe this year with Shani Jahan and Duffy Connors as the ticked boxes and we are at Dropkick Murphy's Bar every day at, until the 25th of August at 6.45. Come and see us if you want your ribs tickled. Um, but before that though, uh, my guest today is a comedian called John Pendle. Um, he gives some really great advice on how to push forward in your comedy career. So I definitely recommend every comic on my level and you know at any level listen to this um we also talk about comedy competitions the differences between audiences here and audiences abroad and also a show called young sheldon um so please give it up for john pendle Hi John, how's it going? It's going very well, although the front of my calves ache. I have been here eight days. I think I've walked eight miles a day. My legs are beginning to complain, but that's, oh. that sounds like I'm an old, decrepit person. It's just anyone at the festival. Yeah, well, it's hard because Edinburgh's, there's no flat surface in Edinburgh. No, I liken it. If you've ever seen the original Star Trek with Spock and Kirk doing yeah. 3D chess, yeah. Edinburgh is like that. Like yeah. Google Maps route you the quickest way in Edinburgh. That's over the mound. I'm not doing that. Yeah, no. So, um, what brought you to doing comedy, man? Um, it, it Hatred of my working job at oh. a desk. I worked in TV 15 years. And to begin with, it required very skilled people being paid mm-hmm. a living wage. And over the 15 years I worked, I just saw everybody get de-skilled as apps came in. And people would start doing, oh, we're not getting that specialist with a lifetime's career in technique to do that. We're, we've got an app on a pad that can do that. That's the worst. And as I saw, like librarians used to look after the tape library. Oh, we're not having a tape library anymore. It's just going to be streamed in. Oh. We don't need librarians. And I could see the writing on the wall. So I thought, what can I do where I don't have to deal with some 18-year-old telling me what my own job is? <laughs> and the beauty of stand-up is there's nothing between you and the audience. Yeah. You write the joke, you say the joke, the other people respond, and there's no managers in between Yeah. micromanaging what you do, explaining your own job to you. Yeah. It's beautiful. I think that's honest. I think you've put it absolutely perfectly. Like, it's just a break from the monotony of everyday, of everyday life. Yeah. Not that my job is monotonous or boring, but like it's just something you need something to do outside of it. And I think for me, comedy is like it's a chance for me to be not hypocritical for once. Yes, I wanted to go to bed without hating myself for what I'd done that day. Yeah, that's right. So, do you want to explain what kind of comedy you do without going into jokes? So, at the moment, it's all autobiographical storytelling. Brilliant. And I thought 10 years ago I would have mined enough of my life and I'd have to start looking at other topics, but uh, my life keeps coming at me. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> That's the best. Like, yeah. I, I prefer those kind. I sort of verge between that and observation. Yeah. But I, I prefer those kind of things to strict one-liners yeah and i think uh what i do is probably the opposite of observational comedy because observational comedy is uniting the room in a shared memory but my life has been so different to everybody else Mm. i'm always drawing people into my world which means my comedy travels in a way observational doesn't you couldn't talk about 
1970s Britain no. in Amsterdam or Melbourne. They just wouldn't get the references. Of course. But because I'm not expecting my audiences to have any knowledge of what I'm talking about, I have gigged all around the world. Oh, I've fantastic. gone America, Canada, Australia, Rome, Oslo. This year I've performed in uh, Atlanta, Oslo, Miami and Chicago. So where's the best... Okay, where's... Um, Comparing it to the comedy scene in, say, London, what's the comedy scene in Atlanta like compared to that? (laughs) I don't want to get racist here, but it's it's quite black. Yeah. uh... (laughs) That's brilliant. That's the best answer. To be fair, Atlanta, from what I've heard, is quite black. Yeah. And uh, I was a bit gobsmacked because there was a comedy festival running about a month before I got there. Yeah. And it was an almost entirely white lineup and people going, how the hell have you managed this in a city that is over 50% yeah. people of colour? How have you managed to get such a white lineup in, in the Atlanta comedy scene? Because most of the comedians from Atlanta, they go to LA and New York. Okay. That's probably, that's probably yeah. why. And the comedians who come from New York and LA... Yeah. We'll go to Atlanta. We'll go to Atlanta. I was a little bit worried because uh, I am, I am, I can't help it. I I was raised on a very white estate, yeah. so I have no kind of swag. Yeah, I, that's I fine. think when when black people are looking up at at a lineup, they kind of see me and see blonde hair, blue eyes, very white guy. Probably not for me. Ah. And this year, my show is about shame, and I really didn't know how that was going to translate into different different communities. Yeah. But I've I've just been blessed that people have come up that uh, they've received a different version on it so for some black people have come up and said we never saw ourselves in films as a kid yeah and that gave me shame about the way I look yeah Uh, I did it in Leicester and there was a lot of uh, Muslim elderly couples and they said oh our religion is all about shame so although it wasn't the same shame that I had they were getting their own shame it's still an international language yeah it is because every culture or every religion has something shameful about them yeah right? so there's in that show i'm guessing everyone has something they can relate to yes well what happens is that it's not that they've had the same experience as me yeah but they've had the same they can see how it gave me shame and they've mm-hmm. got their own shame and we all leave feeling better about whatever the shame is that we've got yeah. So when I've gone to Nordic countries, uh, they suffer a lot where it's kind of dark a few months of the year and there's no sunshine. There's a huge amount of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Alcohol's priced very highly because basically as a country, they've got seasonal adjustment disorder. Yeah. And they've come up with it's shame about alcohol abuse. So it's interesting that people have each have got their own experience of mm. shame and yet this show's managing to be universal. Okay. How long have you been doing comedy for? Um kind of accidentally because I won a competition since 2003 but wow, I, okay. I gave up my job in 2010 and that's when I said introduce me as a comic which turned out to be uh, a real eye-opener because if 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 you're not being introduced as a comic and mm-hmm. you happen to be funny that's just like a mate down the pub giving you a laugh yeah. that's a really good thing but as soon as you're introduced as a comic they're going right make me laugh oh I hate that and if you aren't of a standard you failed as a comic, whereas yeah. before you could have won as an MC. Yeah. You could have been an MC for an event that just happened to be funny. But yeah. all of a sudden in 2010, I realised, oh, the standard really is way higher than just you know MCing a fundraiser or yeah. an evening and telling a few jokes and getting away with it. Yeah. As soon as you're introduced as a comic, they expect something. I've found that <laughs> here definitely. Um, I've this is my first ever. This I've only been doing it for a year and a bit. This is okay. my first ever Edinburgh. And what I've found with a couple of audiences is 
even though they well a lot of them are in the bar to get, some of them are in the bar just to have a drink yeah especially on Mondays and Tuesdays that's those are the dead days in it those are the dead days in Edinburgh right and when they realize that there's comedy on those be like okay make me laugh yeah I can pass on a, the best bit of advice I was ever given yeah go for it so at comedy school they told us something and I think this is wrong they said close with your best joke and open with your second best because that way you start strong and you end strong. Yeah. No. As soon as I came up to Edinburgh, somebody said, don't do that. Open with your three best jokes. They will forgive you the next 20 minutes if you've opened with three really strong gags. Yeah. So it, now I don't do second best and then best at the end. I open with three solid. They will forgive you the next 20 minutes yeah. if you got them on board. Bang, bang, bang. Three at the top. You've won them over. Yeah. And now you can find your feet. Yeah. I sort of did that last night. They were a bit of a quiet audience. Yeah. Not going to lie. Um, but we still got money in the bucket. Good. So they were quiet, but they yeah. sort of appreciate it in a way. Edinburgh is a place where it's it's unique. Everywhere else in the world I go, I'm usually the only thing on that day that's mm. funny. Yeah. So they come having not used up any laughter. Edinburgh, they will have seen three or four shows. They can clearly enjoy yours. They've just got no more laughs to give. Yeah. So uh, they'll sit there with smiles, happy smiles. Yeah. But we got all our laughter out of the way by noon. Yeah. <laughs> that's the hard... Yeah, I think that's the hardest thing for me to get on board with because yeah. in London they because well, I'm on the open mic scene still yeah like they will come to see comedy and they won't have had they'll just come from their exactly. job or whatever yeah. else and that'll be important that might be the first time they've had a proper laugh all day yeah whereas as you said in Edinburgh they can see anybody yeah it's why so many comedians in a solo hour have a sad bit at 40 minutes. Yeah. Because people can't laugh 50 minutes without stopping. Eventually, the laughs run dry. Yeah. So if you have a break in the laughter at 40, you know, usually a parent mm. dies. Yeah. That's the cliche. Yeah. They can reset. And then when you do your closer, they're refresh and they're going to start laughing again for the last bit. Yeah. Fantastic. That's fantastic advice. But So a parent dies in my show this year, but I do it at the 10-minute mark. Okay. To break convention, because I didn't want to be a cliche. Of course not. <laughs> Why would you? Like, that's that's actually genius. I'm going to do it at the 5-minute mark now. Just Well, not a parent well, dying, but like... Well, there's only twice you can do it if you've got two parents, and I happen to have one that passed this year. So oh. I thought, I need to address that, because last year's show was all about my dad. Okay. And if people come back, there may be questions. Oh, how's he doing? So I thought, let's admit in the show... You know, he passed in March, but I do it at 10 minutes and then we can crack on with it oh, funny. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, oh, I made it funny in the show. That's no, fine. Well, well <laughs> tragedy, well, out of, pain, out of pain and tragedy comes comedy. Yeah. That's... Yeah, so. somebody looked at the at the pricey for my show this year, kind of guilt, shame, death of a parent, mm-hmm. just went, how do you make that funny? I think it's easier to get laughs when people are slightly nervous about yeah. what they're talking about. Yeah. It's harder to get laughs out of a out of a benign thing. Yeah. You know, make a laugh out of an orange is quite hard. But if somebody's already oh, you've just mentioned your dad died and then you make them laugh, that release mm. is a much bigger laugh. Of course. Because they yeah, because it's they're just tense at that point. Yeah. And, and it's a lovely release of tension. Yeah. There's a bit in the show I talk about my church doing something not very nice and then I, I make a silly a really silly old testament mm. joke and the laugh is way bigger than the joke. Mm deserves yeah but it's because it comes off the back of me just saying that something bad had happened and it's that release of laughter mm. just fills the room it's a lovely point that's just given me an idea of how to structure a joke in my show which is really which is do you know what? this is the reason i do this podcast yeah to actually 
learn from people who have been going a little bit longer than I who have been going longer than I have. And yeah, thank you. That's been really, That's okay. really helpful. That's brilliant. When a joke doesn't work, it's not that the joke isn't funny, it's that either the delivery or the placing or the punctuation wasn't correct. So uh, I just imagine I've pulled the joke down from the sky. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work, let it go back up. It's still up there. And at some day in the future, when I have a bit more experience, I'll suddenly go, I know how to say that. Yeah. And I'll pull it back down and try again with a slightly different variation of words. Yeah. I've, um, I've found at the fringe that this is, that's probably the best place. Yeah. It's probably the best place to do it. Because you will do, if you're doing five spots a day and 25 solo shows, yeah. you will do as many gigs in one month at Edinburgh as six, eight months touring the rest of the year. Yeah, that's true. Um, we're doing 20 minutes each at my show at the moment. Okay. I've sort of cut my bit down to like 10 minutes because I'm, I'm rewriting some, I'm re- rewriting about 70% of the show, but I'm rewriting 70% of my set at the moment. Okay. So I just thought, do you know what? I'm not happy with what I'm saying. It's getting lost, but I don't feel comfortable saying it, to be honest. Okay. So I had a bit of a like mental breakthrough. And I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. This is the kind of comic I want to be. Like, And I think that this is the best place to do that, yeah. really. It's worth recording yourself because yeah. even you can say the same words one day and the next. And one day gets laughed, the next day doesn't. And when you listen to the recording, it's because on the second day, mm. you just went slightly faster than the previous day. Yeah. And it gave an audience a feeling that you weren't comfortable. Mm. And I've done that here. There was a day that I was stressed over something. It was a Saturday and the whole of Bristow Square appeared to be drunk. And it just kind of weirded me out. I didn't want any of those drunks in my room. No. And I listened to the recording on the Sunday and I just went, instead of a 55 minute show, it was 52. Mm-hmm. I'd said all the same words, but I did it in three minutes quicker. Okay. And the laughter was less because they got a sense, you're not confident, you're not comfortable yeah. and relaxed. So I've gone back to reminding myself, go slow, enjoy the moment. Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the things you've got to get the timing right, haven't you? Like it's all about timing, whether it be... I had everything the same, just yeah. running two percent quicker. Yeah. And that's all it took. Oh that's it's amazing how that how that little that little two percent yeah. can and make would, such a difference. But I wouldn't have known if I hadn't recorded it and yeah. listened back to find out what was happening. I've now got a um, I've now got a tripod. So I'm gonna start video recording all of my stuff. I'm gonna video record all my stuff. <laughs> I'm not at that point yet. <laughs> I don't think I could watch myself. But listening is easy because I can listen in the gym. Yeah. You know, it's a one-hour workout, one-hour show. I yeah. can listen to it back. So how? Because um, I've not done. Uh, I've not. I'm nowhere near the level of doing a one-hour show yet. Okay. What advice would you give to someone at my level who's potentially gonna be looking into doing that in the next few years? Okay. So the first great bit of advice delay your debut hour as long as humanly possible i waited six years because you will get more press for your debut hour than any other show you ever do yeah every reviewer will come because they're all looking for the brand new thing so if you blow that too soon you've lost all Mm. of that press you know the following year you'll get maybe two reviews if you're lucky and you think well hang on last year i had you know 15 where have they all gone yeah because that was your debut hour so it's a good idea to do gang shows for a bit uh, and then work up to a two-hander yeah. where you're doing half each and then maybe do a 40-minute show and get a friend to do a 10-minute spot to make yeah. it the hour, but at least you're not blowing that debut hour. Yeah. Uh, and then make sure when you do the debut hour, work with a director, get some PR and milk that for all it's worth because it's a one opportunity. You'll mm. never have that opportunity to put debut hour on your poster ever again. No, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, don't be afraid of working with a director. Um, 
I thought comedy had to be solitary. I thought you had to do it solo, um, which may be true in a 15 or 20 minute club set. But as soon as you're structuring an hour, Mm. having somebody outside what you're trying to do saying that bit needs to go sooner Mm. is invaluable. And the one thing that a director's taught me is if you can lose a joke, uh, don't ever want to lose a joke, but if you can lose Mm. a joke and the show still runs, yeah. So what you want is if you're doing a narrative show, this isn't doesn't apply to one-liners or sketch, but if you're doing what I do, which is a story for an hour, if there's any bit of that story you can cut and it still works, you have to cut it. You can only say a paragraph if it is essential to the train tracks that you're on. Because mm. so many comedians go, oh, I've got this 20 minutes in my back pocket that works on that, I'll shoehorn that in. Mm. And I've got this story here, I'll make an anecdote, I'll shoehorn that in. But what you have to do is rewrite it so you're still telling those punchlines, but they're now essential to the narrative. Mm. So every time my director this year said, babe, you know, you can lose that, I would just keep the punchline and I would place it somewhere else so it was on a narrative sentence. Oh, nice. So the next time they heard it, they went, that's in a much better place. Nice one. Because you've still got the joke, but now it helps the story. Yeah. So, yeah, any time I look at a show now and I think, oh, you're just putting that in because it's funny, Mm. keep the punchline, just find a different place for it to go on the back end of a sentence that Mm. wasn't funny but was still essential to the story. Yeah, that's... I'm learning so much from this. This is great. Because uh, you're right, like... From the outside looking in, yeah, it's a comedian is just someone working on their own. Mm-hmm. But it's when you're doing something big like your hour show, you do need to have other hands involved. Yeah, like maybe not other writers or anything, maybe not other writers, but people who can look from the outside in to see where you're going wrong. Yeah, and give you some crit, some constructive criticism. So we're. Uh, uh something I've done different this year the, the my first three shows uh, the director was excellent extraordinarily mm. talented one of the best in the business mm-hmm. but similar to me white cisgender male and this year mm. my director is a uh, female uh, director and she has just put mm. a very slightly different spin on everything mm-hmm. so that the show is more inclusive than ever yeah and all the reviews are saying it's a really inclusive show and I think part of that was having a director who didn't come from the same part of the privilege tree as me yeah if that's not being too the privilege tree I love that analogy because when I came out as gay I felt low down the privilege tree in that there was an unequal age of consent we weren't allowed to get married we weren't allowed to adopt section 28 meant you couldn't even talk about me in in a school to a school kid if they were being bullied so I felt reasonably low the bottom and over uh, 20 years I'm now married, I could adopt. Well, it's kind of great, but now I feel like I'm top of the privilege tree. Ah. And there's a huge distance now. I would like trans women of colour to still enjoy my show, but I have to realise their life experience now is so extraordinarily different to mine. Mm. I am so, uh, so much more conventional and accepted by society that it takes somebody just from a different part of the tree to have a little look and go... Can you word that differently? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it can still be funny, but there will be people in the room for whom this means something different. Yeah. So I've been working a lot on that this year to make sure everybody who comes uh, still gets something out of it. Mm. And it's been really nice that I had a... Am I allowed to boast? I had a five-star review from The Voice. Oh, and well all done, the way through, they were just saying how inclusive it was. And I thought, yeah, I'm not sure I'd have had that review 
without the help of everybody this year, mm. really working hard to make sure different s- sections were catered for. That's great. Like that's it's true though. Like yeah. speaking of speaking of um, speaking of diversity, um, do you think that the British comedy scene is in a good place in regards to diversity? Do you think it's in a bad place, or do you think it's quite stagnant at the moment? There are pockets it's getting better. So Channel 4 are working hard to make sure there's kind of Asian representation yeah, on Mark TV. Yeah, Martez Elias has just yeah. got his new show. Sindhu V. But there is still that feeling that, you know, in, in the like if there's a chair on a panel show, does it go to a woman or does it go to a person of colour? Yeah. And if we have two mm. women that week, two women out yeah. of seven spaces, we maybe won't have a person of colour. Because, yeah. you know, we've got two women. Mm. You know, uh, and if we've got a woman of colour, then we don't need another woman because yeah. we've got the woman and we've got the. Oh, yeah. why does it have to work? Like I know, this? I know. And the thing is, there's so many women of colour who are funny, but there's. I, this is going to sound so bad, but and I don't mean this in a mean way, but it's just like there's only one that's allowed to make it at one time. Mm, yeah. At the moment, yeah. at the moment, we've got London Hughes, who. Yeah. Is on all the chat shows and on yeah. all the and on all the panel shows and I'm seeing her in Edinburgh this year. I'm seeing yeah. her in Edinburgh because she is fantastic and she has worked so hard to get to where she is. But there are so many others as well. How? Yeah. It just seems a shame that there isn't a limit on the number of straight white men allowed to occupy chairs. Yeah. That there is a limit on everybody else. That's right. And but then part of that is the gatekeepers because uh, there was a documentary recently about uh, black people in Hollywood and they said we have had a black president we have yet to have a black president of a film studio fuck and it's the gatekeepers uh, uh, you know on a podcast I was listening to at the gym they were saying there's there's a film out last year I think it was last year Tag where there's some some white men playing a childhood game and they're just tagging each other and they do it and they were given you know, 20, 30 million to make that film. Yeah. How hard is it still if a black mm. person or a woman goes to a film studio and says, I want to make a film? You know, it's mm. got to be something worthy. It's got to be yeah. Selma. It's got to be Martin X. And then, then we can... Uh, but the idea of let's just have women playing a game of yeah. tag, that would never get made. No. That's why I was so... I was just so happy when Girls Trip came out. That was, honestly, one of my favourite films of 2017 starred a mostly black female cast and it grossed over 200 million so that just proves to hollywood that they can do it too yeah so on the one hand comedy's great because anyone theoretically can walk into an open mic pick up the mic and say what they want and a person of color speaking their own words on stage is really powerful Mm. but what you don't have control over is the industry and the gatekeepers. Oh, no. and for that, we need more diversity so that they can recognise, we'll let you through. We'll yeah. let you through the doors. We'll give you a seat at the table. You know, it doesn't have to be, is that chair for a woman or a person of colour? Yeah. It can just be, here's seven chairs. Let's dish them out for who we think are funny. Unfortunately, though, that's why, well, fortunately or unfortunately, that's why we've got to create our own, um, our own avenues, really. Yeah. That's part of the reason why I'm doing this. Yeah. Like, because honestly, I'm not really fussed about getting on live at the Apollo or anything like that. Like, but to do something like this where I can sit down and chat to people who I think who, yeah, who are in the same boat as me, that's 
an avenue that I create on my own. Yeah. Here's another reason why it's important to have more than one person uh, from any background on a chair on a yeah. panel is that if you if there are six chairs five of them are white men and there's one person of color and one woman it doesn't matter if one of the straight white guys isn't isn't to your taste that week i won't yeah. say not funny because we've all got different tastes yeah they're not representing their entire demographic but if the person of color or the woman isn't to your funny bone mm. there is a tendency to go well women aren't funny or you know people from the caribbean always do that that shtick yeah it's, you know and suddenly you're representing everyone as soon as we get two women on chairs there's the pressure is slightly off them representing all women mm. because one of them might make you laugh and that's if right. the other's not to your taste at least we don't say all women aren't funny yeah so that's why we need more it can't just be one chair for the women of course it can't it can't be one chair for any race for any race or any gender it's like yeah, the gatekeepers at the B. But that's as you said, that's the gatekeepers at the BBC or ITV or whatever else. Well, ITV, I don't think make comedy, do they? Well, they don't make. Well, ITV Two does. Well, maybe they don't. Okay, they don't. ITV Two so not aimed at me. Yeah. <laughs> ITV... <laughs> what you don't watch dinner date? <laughs> I'm 48. Oh. There comes a point where I just turn it on. I mean, when they do, what is it, celebrity dating? I saw a promo Celebrity dating, yeah. I literally four. have no idea who any of those people are. To be are. fair, I'm 28. I have no idea who any of those people are either. <laughs> and I'm sure they are celebrities in their own right. Oh, they're but, not. Oh, for God. Uh, it's like yeah. celebrity in the loosest term, though, John. <laughs> like, it's. I was on Love Island. I was on Love Island once. Give me. Uh, and I'm still clinging on to that little bit of fame. Okay. And actually, London Hughes is on it, but she's successful, so yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But those shows are like they're so cheap to make, and again, well, to be fair, they're another avenue. Yeah, like I spoke to someone recently about um, I'm a Celebrity, and Joel Domit was on that. He won. He he won King of the Jungle. Yeah, and as soon as he came out, so did his autobiography. So it can those shows have their place, I guess, but like they, again, yeah, I just don't like them. I can't, I can't stand them. But so where did you actually grow up? Sorry, <laughs> I grew up in Watford in oh. Hertfordshire, which is an overflow of London. Yes. And you really have two choices if you grow up in Watford: you can stay for the rest of your life, or yeah. you can leave and never go back. Yeah, that's and right. I chose to leave and never go back. So, right. so where did you move to after Watford? I went to Southampton oh, to nice. university. I stayed there for eight years and I got a job at Meridian ITV. Oh. And they were the only broadcaster for 100 miles. So really there wasn't any chance of progress. No. And then the cable and satellite revolution started in the late 80s, 90s. And anybody who didn't have kids who was able to move, moved to London, where suddenly there was an explosion of cable mm. and satellite channels. And... Uh, because staff was was short in London, you could mm. hop from job to job and do very well. So move yeah. back to London. So, what do you think? Have you gigged in London recently? Yeah, I did a couple of previews in London just before I came up to Edinburgh. Sweet. How did you find the audiences in London compared to everywhere else, anywhere else in the country? You have to pick and choose the comedy night. Yeah. Because there has been explosion on the open mic scene of what they call bringer nights. Oh yeah. And if I was God, I would ban every single one of those. <laughs> They are absolutely awful because half the audience are acts waiting to go up, so they're not going to laugh at you. And the other half are friends brought under duress, so they're not going to laugh at you. 
So what you need is somebody who's actually willing to put in a bit of legwork as a promoter and get a genuine audience in. And those are available, but they're just a couple of rungs up the ladder mm. from that entry level. So the hard thing is kind of getting your 100 gigs under your mm. belt so that you can start applying for the ones with a genuine audience. Yeah, I sort of feel the same way about bringing gigs myself, but I have there's a promoter called Gary Michaels who does, he runs, honestly one of the best bringer nights you'll ever go to, right? Because the way he's, the way he emcees it, he just makes it seem like we're all in the same, we're all in the same boat together. Yeah. And because of that, it's, it's even though it's a bringer night, it's lovely. It's genuinely yeah. lovely. But My issue is, if there are a couple of good bringer nights, yeah. that legitimizes the model, which is then replicated ad infinitum with bad bringer nights. Yeah. And when I started 10 years ago, there weren't any. Really? Yeah. Shit. But do you think that could potentially be because there's been an explosion of open mic nights in general in London? So yeah, because so many... everyone's doing a comedy course and it's yeah. like a pool of piranhas when they're yeah. eating our own. Yeah. But that doesn't make you a good comic. You have no. to get out of that pool into a different pool. That's right. How do you? Th- um, what advice would you give to get you out of that pool? To get you out of that pool? Um, I did it by working with a. I did it by working with a comedy promoter who's pretty reviled and that people are very snobby about, but it got me outside the M25. Okay. And I willingly and knowingly did 200 open spots for that promoter without mm. getting paid. And people were saying how abused and taken advantage of I was. No, this is my apprenticeship. Yeah. This is getting me around the country into lots of different environments, restaurants, schools, mm. fundraisers, uh, coffee shops, universities every gig was different and that's where I cut my chops yeah and I thought yeah they might be using me because they're not paying me but I'm using them as my apprenticeship yeah and when I came back to London and started doing gigs I was a couple of rungs higher up the ladder and other people were saying oh we haven't seen you for a while how come you're getting that gig it's because I put in the hours yeah going places outside the M25 yeah um I've started responding to Murph Control get to uh, Murph Control uh um and they and it's an open spot in Matlock. Then yeah. they've given they've given it to me. So I was like, okay, great. I'm gonna start using them now and just cutting my chops. Yeah. As but you. as soon as you know your worth, as soon as you know you've done your apprenticeship, don't take any any more open spots there. Yeah. No. So. With this particular promoter, they was they said for about eighteen months, you keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep giving you paid work. And I just looked and said, you never give me paid work. Yeah. Uh, so as soon as I thought, right, I am good enough for paid work, I just stopped applying for the open spots and I stopped getting offered anything. And that's fine because I went elsewhere and got paid by other people. Nice. Okay. Nobody's going to move you up a rung. You're in charge of your own career. You that's have right. to decide when you're worth something. That's and it. take the hit. It means for a little while in your diary, there's going to be some blank pages and that's very yeah. frightening. But it's better that than just stay on the same rung forever. Yeah. I mean, you can obviously, I'm guessing you can still do some open mic spots when you're trying to work things out but you do better ones yeah that's right there are open mic nights for professionals and you gradually work your way up to those okay so because everyone you can be off the tv you can be eddie izzard you're still going to have to do a new material gig who i'm seeing seeing in edinburgh this year in his case he charges money and sells tickets for his preview nights yes uh but it doesn't stop the fact that the first time you write a joke no matter how famous you are you have to try it in front of people who've You've never said it to do before. That's right. And you that's... never stop doing new material. Hmm. 
Um, so what advice would you? Okay, sorry. Is that okay? Does it matter having an edit? Nope. So you started by doing a comedy competition. Yeah, is that right? Well, it was a competition in America. Okay. Called International Mr. Leather. It's a bit of a pageant for men in leather. Yeah. It's run 41 years. This year, 18,000 people attended. Wow. It's a huge deal. I won it in 2003. I'm the only British person who's ever won it. Good for you, man. And I had to take a year off work and travel around the world being an international sex ambassador. Oh, nice. So I was quite often on the microphone for fundraisers, for local sexual health projects, or uh, emceeing leather contests, giving speeches, and uh, I managed to milk that for another eight years or so. Nice. Um, because if they can't get hold of the current international Mr. Leather for an event, they will look back in the books to see who did a good job. Yeah. So I still got booked... Uh, and then it began to drop off around 2008 and I was looking for uh, transferable skills so yeah. that they could still book me but not necessarily as international Mr. Leather. So then I started saying to them, I'm a comedian. If you book me, I'm a comedian who was previously international Mr. Leather. Yeah. And there was a bit of that. Uh, but as the comedy took off and it became my profession, now they just book me as a mm. kinky comic. Nice. Kinky comic. I love that. That's mm. good. Um, it's almost alliteration but not yeah. quite. Um, so what do you think of comedy competitions as a whole? Uh, they're great if you can just see them as a gig. Yes. They are awful if you put any kind of pressure on yourself because literally nothing will happen as a result. Yeah. Um, it's not normally the, the winner who has the success. It is the person who has uh, tenacity. You know the story of the, the tortoise and the hare? Yeah. It's just the one. It doesn't matter what rate you're going at. If you can keep going keep getting better eventually you'll be noticed and the mm. person who wins the competition might be the hair that gets signed for a year but after a year that agent quite often has a clear out yeah and somebody who was dropped may have more issues than someone who was never signed at all yeah so really don't worry about what other people are doing just keep doing what you're doing that's a bit like that is i keep saying this whenever i mention comedy competitions but that is exactly the path of an x-factor contestant yeah yeah the winners are never the ones who have the longevity. It's always the ones who come second and third who become the successful ones. Well, Gary Delaney says if he had a choice at the beginning of his career between tenacity and talent, he would always choose tenacity, the ability to keep going. Yeah. Because he did not think he was the strongest joke writer out no. of his pack that came through, but he was the one who kept going. Yeah. And now he's Gary Delaney. But it's a case of you've just got to keep going. Just keep gigging, keep writing, keep editing. Editing's more important than writing. That's right. Because if you can't... You've got to be critical of yourself. Not yeah. like to a point where you're in a dark room and you're in a really dark place. But you've got to think, okay, this went well. What can I do better? Of every 30 jokes you write, you have to be willing to kill 29 of them. Yeah. And if you can make a show out of one thirtieth of your output, it will be a great show. Yeah. But uh, it took me a long time to learn that. I used to write 30 jokes and maybe drop five of them. Mm. And that's not going to cut it. No. Well, the thing is, an audience doesn't have the attention span for 30 jokes anyway. No, so you have to do a lot of new material nights. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Fun, for, and aren't they the funnest ones? <laughs> but the nice thing about being an autobiographical storyteller yeah. is that if something isn't funny, you can just pretend it was part of the story. Yeah. And if the story is interesting enough, you've still got them on side. Mm. The difficulty would come, I think, is if you're a one-liner comic and you're just 
trying 30 jokes yeah if none of those make the audience laugh you've really tried their patience yeah if there's some kind of narrative hook you can hook them with the story even when the jokes aren't working mm. yeah I, there's something i do admire about one line of comedians like because they've got when I mean, they're really good they are really really fast and they really can come up with some really great witty things like milton jones can but more often than not it's a, it can be a real struggle to get through especially yeah. if it's especially if they're on for more than 10 minutes yeah yeah um not to put down any one line of friend, any one line of comedian friends of mine but like that no i love i love one line of comics uh, there's a great one in brighton um william stone at the moment mm-hmm. he's absolutely fantastic oh, is, he's um he started off um the south kensington comedy club yeah and yeah so i've met I've... tony cowards this year is at just the tonic he's mm-hmm. worth going to see there's i love it as an art form it's not something i do right. but then i look at physical comics and sketch comics and musical comics they're all great it's not what i do we're all climbing different mountains that's right and our top is different to their top yeah and that's the great thing about our art form man like anyone well not anyone because it's not something that anyone can do but like i think anybody can benefit from it in a way that if you're teaching a painting class anybody can come along and paint they're not all going to be professional painters but they will get a benefit from learning how to paint and they will get better compared to themselves and Mm. that's all you can do is compete with yourself that's right um i actually did a comment i did a comedy course the yeah that's what started me off but like it was do you know what? It was really well run. It was run by Kate Smurfite, who's great, and she's actually had the fringe this year. And she had the fringe this year. Um, but it was just to give me a kick up the backside to do the to do the comedy because it's something yeah. I wanted to do. But I needed to have a fine a sort of an incentive to do it, and that's what did, and that's what did that for me. What was sort of your incentive to keep go, to keep going when you when once you started? The good gigs will keep you going. Yeah. The bad gigs will teach you how to get better. That's right. If you only ever had good gigs, you would never get better. Of course. And if you only ever had bad gigs, you'd give up. So you've got to find a mix of the two. Yeah. How do you, um, how do you feel that, do you think like as you've grown up, as you've grown as a comic, do you feel like the good to bad has leveled out a bit? Uh, Whenever I have a run of gigs that are going well, and there's a bit of me that says you're asking for a a death because you'll never stop having them, but also a bit of me questions, am I booking rooms that are too easy to play? Mm. Uh, Nobody will ever move you up a rung in your career. So if you suddenly find that you're smashing every single room that you play, I think you're booking gigs that are too easy. Yeah, and that's that's a good way to make you feel good, but it's not a way to make you improve. Yes. And you've got to find other out. You've got to find other rooms which are going to challenge you, who aren't your normal, who aren't your normal audience, yeah. to see whether you can get them on side. Obviously, you're not here to make everybody laugh because no comedian can, but you've got to try it. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, when do we stop learning? Otherwise, we'll stop learning, and that's not fair. Yeah. Right, young shoulder. Okay. <laughs> so, um. I'm going to come out and say that I hated the Big Bang Theory. A lot of people do. Yeah, I really... I mean, actually, no, like, I liked it up until season five. I just think after season five, Chuck Lorre maybe had some... He had he had, another, he had other projects, so he maybe left it a little bit. And I think 
more than anything for me the editing went downhill went went uh, the editing went downhill when the editing goes downhill on a tv show the punchlines don't hit as well as they used to okay so when they announced that young sheldon was going to be a thing i was like i was just dreading it i was like okay this is going to be just a just a shameless cash in and it's not going to last more than one season obviously right I watched the first episode. I'm in love with it. Yeah. Like, I'm absolutely in love with the show. It sort of follows the classic family route, this, the Malcolm in the, the sort of Malcolm in the Middle-ish routine. Yeah. Of you know the crazy the um, the one smart child and everyone else around him is a bit out outlandish and eccentric, but it's just got so much heart. Yes. And the kid that plays Sheldon is he is a young Jim Parsons. Yeah, he was a YouTube star. He got discovered recording himself doing theatre reviews on YouTube. Really? And that's how he got his break. Brilliant. So we were talking about open access, how different uh, social media now can you know widen the gatekeeping. This is somebody who yeah was recording his own theatre reviews, mm. and that's how he was discovered. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't seen it, it's um, it's a spin-off from The Big Bang Theory, obviously, and it focuses on the early life of Sheldon Cooper. And it's shot in a very different way. So Big Bang is a mainstream, multi-camera, mm-hmm. in front of a live audience, yeah. very studio-bound sitcom. Yeah. Uh, Young Sheldon is shot more like a drama or a documentary, where it's single camera, uh, It's it looks like it's shot on film, yeah. and uh, there's lots of location use, and there's no laughter track. Yeah, and I think it benefits from that enormously because it's not a car because the fact that it's not a carbon copy of the big bang theory gives it its own life yeah and i think if they'd have gone down the route of i don't know say joey like the sitcom joey after friends had ended yeah i know it existed we can't we can't pretend that it didn't exist john it did um where they basically just did a spin-off with the character and did the exact same format it wouldn't have worked and it's not just Ian Armitage in the lead who is mm. incredible. Uh, they have Annie Potts as his oh, grandmother. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you should just put her in every single show. Yeah. She uh, she was in Go- the original Ghostbusters yeah. as the receptionist, but she steals every scene that she's in. Of course. Uh, they've also got Sheldon's mum is played by an actress who is the real life daughter of Laurie Metcalf, yeah. who plays his mum in the old Yes. Side. And that's not the first time on screen she's played her own mother's daughter yeah. because she did in Roseanne as well yeah. she played a younger version of her mother yeah. yeah I just think there's something in the Metcalf genes that just makes them so watchable yeah because I've been a big fan of Laurie Metcalf since Roseanne in the 90s and you know and even in the reboot which is no longer is no longer is no longer well actually no it is around but it's got a different name now isn't it um, yeah and the young girl who plays his twin sister Missy uh, she's in about three scenes a week and again steals every one of them. Yeah. She's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, I just really enjoy the dynamic. I just really enjoy watching Sheldon grow up. As I know we know where it's going to sort of know where it's going to end up. It's nice to it's sort of nice to be taken on this little journey before yeah. everyone up before. Well, I've not heard the criticism of Big Bang being about the mm. editing. Usually the criticism I hear is that it's 
billed and marketed as mm. a as a comedy about geeks but they're not really geeks it's a mainstream sitcom with geek references dropped in and that really offends the actual geeks mm. i never saw big bang that way for me big bang was sheldon's journey from somebody who had very complex needs yeah. with his social difficulty through gaining a group of friends gaining yeah. a girlfriend his first kiss his wedding um all the way through was his arc in learning how to function in a neurotypical world yeah. so young sheldon just extends that arc backwards when he really did need a lot of help yeah um so it's all for me part of a continuum and that's why i have a really special relationship with both mm. in that i to score quite highly on the spectrum and yeah. i just look at this program and think if young sheldon had been on when i was growing up it wouldn't have stopped the bullying but it would have explained why i was different yeah like that's part of the reason why I stuck with Big Bang Theory as long as I did, because if, like, even after I felt the editing had, stopped, had gone downhill, I still watched it because I liked seeing Sheldon's journey. Yeah. But it just got to a point where I was like, as a as a t as someone who like as someone who notices things. Yeah. I just couldn't watch it anymore. I'm sorry, but um, that's all right. We've all got different tastes. Yeah. But I watched it each week just because it was nice to see myself represented on screen. That's great to see. Like that, and then again, that's another. Um, what was I going to say? What was I going to say? Because we were talking about it earlier. That's another. That's something else we don't always see. We don't yeah. see often enough. Because it's never really. It's never mentioned that he's actually these on a spectrum. No, it's just that he's because it's taken from a first-person viewpoint, and yeah. somebody from within their own head wouldn't necessarily think of themselves that way. They think they were normal. Yeah. Um. So it's it's beautifully done. Yeah. Like, and I love the fact that they just accept him for who he is. I mean, they they want to push him to be a bit not exactly neurotypical, but they want to push him out of his comfort zone. Yeah, but it shows the frustrations of the people around him. It's yeah. a really warm, inclusive show. Yeah. Uh, you know, it has Mary going to church every week, and there's a lot of Christianity in it, and I thought that would yeah. um, bring back some scars for me, but it's done in such a lovely way. All the Christians are just shown as normal people. Yeah. And the way that it's normalising everybody's life, you accept all of them. Yeah. Even the bro- even the older brother, who's the... <laughs> <laughs> Georgie. Yeah. Yeah. My favourite episode is where uh, young Sheldon and his twin sister go to a research facility and he thinks it's to find out why he's a genius Yeah. and that he is going to ace all the tests. But some of the tests they do are about mm. emotional understanding oh. and his sister turns out to be the genius Oh God. because she can read emotional understanding yeah. and he has none. And it's lovely that it's not that he's the smartest guy in every room and everyone else is an idiot. They're all mm. smart in different areas. Yeah. It's just sometimes it's not rated in tests. That's right. And that's really good. That's actually really nice to see. Yeah. Because I didn't do the best in te- I didn't do the best in tests, but like emotional intelligence, I was a bit better. I was a yeah. bit better at that. But yeah, it's a show. It's a good because smart on TV and comedy, right? Smart. And intelligence, smartness and intelligence is often just shown in how much you know. Yes. Whereas in Young Sheldon, and in some places, the big, and a lot of places, the Big Bang Theory as well, it shows that everyone's actually got a little bit of intelligence about them. Yeah, we just score on different scales in different things. Yeah, but that and that's great that it's just so, we've, even though as I said, as I keep saying, not the biggest fan of the Big Bang Theory, it's inclusive. 
I know this Enough. isn't going to work for a podcast. Perhaps you can uh, describe what you're about to see. Yeah, I've sure. got a picture of me about young Sheldon's age. Yeah. Oh my God, that is uncanny. He's wearing a but he's wearing a long tie. His eyes are like almost his eyes are almost shut, and the grin is adorable. And he's wearing a shirt. How, how old? So I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt, a very long tie with a tie pin, hot pants, <laughs> bare legs. And I'm camping. I'm at a tent. This oh. is my camping attire. Oh my god! Shorts, tie, long sleeve shirt, and I'm camping. You are young shoulder. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I just needed to prove it. I've got photographic proof. I am young. We watch it every week, even when it's a week where the the laughs are fewer and it's, yeah. we're saying, oh, it's not so funny. I just think, yeah, but I've seen myself on screen for half yeah. an hour, and that's just lovely. Yeah, that must be absolutely lovely to see. Yeah, I just had to prove it to you. That's fine. And the thing is, I, as I work in a school, a couple of the kids I work with are like young Sheldon. Yes. And it's nice to, well, it's nice to be able to have something for them to be able to potentially watch. Yeah. To be able to see that themselves when they're growing up. Oh, and dear me. It's beautiful. It's just genuinely... I've, that picture has never been described as beautiful. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see the picture, you can come to my show. You can see it in great detail. Right. I have lots of pictures of my childhood in my show this year. Nice. So where can they see your show? So the show's at Gilda Balloon in Bristow Square. Oh, nice one. I'm in the turret, which is right at the top. There is a lift if you struggle with stairs. Mm-hmm. The room's quite hot, so do dress cool. But I think that's a, an issue across the fringe. Yes, it is. Um, so where can they find you on social media, John? Uh, on YouTube, I'm slash John Pendle. On Facebook, slash Leather Comedy. <laughs> on Instagram, johnpendle.comic. Now, a smarter person would have put used the same username for all social media. Yeah. I'm not a smart person. <laughs> I am an idiot, and so I have different names for each one. The one that I'm not on is Twitter, uh, which I can't do for my own sanity, because yeah. I feel like I ought to read the tweet of everybody following me. Yeah. And so I've tried four times to join Twitter, and I go down a tweet hole. A rabbit hole is... Yeah. I, I can't do it. So That's I've, fine. I just can't. My so, OCD kicks in and I feel the need to read all the tweets. Oh, and apparently God. that's not humanly possible. Oh, God. <laughs> what, you want to read every, like all 52 billion tweets? Yeah, apparently like, oh. apparently that's what I have to do when I join Twitter, so oh. I can't. Okay, that's great. On that note, it's been lovely speaking to you, John. It's been great, Bob. Okay, can I tell you really quickly the pitch for the show? Yes, you can. Uh, it's, uh, it's a show that laughs in the face of shame and guilt. So at three in the morning, I lie awake thinking I'm a bad person. I tell you what thoughts are going through my head. We all laugh at them. It's very funny. Yeah. And you leave feeling like a better person because you realise what makes you feel like a bad person isn't such a bad thing after all. Brilliant. What time's the show on? 7.45. 7.45. All right. Jonathan, absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you everybody for listening. As always, you can catch me on Twitter at your boy Gibbo, on Instagram at Gibbogram1, and also you can catch myself, Duffy Connors, and Charlotte Johan as the ticked boxes every day in August until the 25th at Dropkick Murphy's Bar at the Edinburgh Fringe. Alright, guys, thanks very much. Goodbye.